everyone and welcome to the social contract a commander podcast i'm mike allman and joining me is my co-host alex lap alex what's up man not too much mike happy to be here so we are going to try and handle a pretty broad topic um we last week we talked about you know some different things and ways that you can look at commander in interesting ways uh, maybe ways that you're not necessarily doing on a day-to-day basis. Uh, what we're going to be looking at instead is just kind of a checklist for what makes a commander game as fun as possible. That doesn't mean that we've weeded out you know, every single little guideline, things along those lines. Uh, it's more of just kind of like a, a, a general checklist. If, if you have these items going on in your game, chances are everybody's going to have a pretty good time, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would say that uh, if you've got all this going on and your games still aren't fun, maybe you just hate each other. Yeah, at that point, it's probably a you issue or you and your yeah. friends issue or needing better friends. Um, but we we just kind of bounced a couple of things back and forth. And we came with about eight things that we think in no particular order will lead you to have a better game. And Alex, why don't you go ahead and get us started with those? Yeah, you got it. So uh, first item we have on the list here is that everyone's deck is functioning as designed. And this is a this is a pretty broad idea because a lot of this happens off the table, right? This happens before your pot even sits down to start playing. Sure. Uh, it happens. It It's if someone's deck isn't working, it's quite likely, quite possible that it's really not your fault. It's that's that's from a deck building process. However, if for whatever reason that that's happening, uh, if someone's deck is not working, that's just a miserable situation for them. What do I mean when I say everyone's deck is functioning as designed? I'm talking about that everyone gets to cast their commander, uh, everybody gets to cast some spells, nobody's getting uh, mana screwed, nobody's getting land flooded, mm-hmm. and the person who's who's out in fronts who's leading the pack, uh, that changes up. You don't have the same person who's just starts out way out in front and they're leading, they're completely dominating the whole game and then they win. That's, I mean, that could be a, a power level discrepancy, which we'll talk later, but um, yeah, I mean, Mike, this is kind of a, this is kind of a complicated one because again, this is, there's a lot of personal responsibility yeah. when it comes to, when it comes to this. Because there's, um, there's a lot of that that goes into actual deck building. And it goes exactly. into a lot of the play group that you're playing with. I mean, saying things like the commander gets to be resolved at least once means that you're playing with people that are also going to allow you to cast spells. Um, but yeah, right. not getting flooded, not getting uh, land screwed at the same time. Well, that's that's not something that can be done before. That's not something that can be done at the table necessarily. So right. that people have constructed their decks to function, but more importantly, that they're in a position where their decks are allowed to function. 
And that gets, that actually goes into our second point here, and you mentioned it, that everybody is playing at the same power level. It's our second item. There is a certain amount of fun that can be had from feeling really powerful and just being the arch enemy from the start of the game to the end of the game. That's all well and good. And some people just thrive off that. I mean, there's even, there's cards. There's a, there's arch enemy cards for a setting to do stuff like that. Don't get me wrong. It's awesome. But it's not fun to be in a position where, you know, there's kind of this arbitrary number that people put on, you know, between a scale of one to 10 and, that's its own problem in figuring out exactly where it is. Um, but you don't want to be a guy sitting at a table with, a, you know, I've got an okay deck. You know, I just kind of made this because I thought it would have a fun interaction in it. I like the commander. He looked weird. Um, and then you sit down and play a bunch of highly competitive CEDH decks that are planning on winning by turn three if they possibly can that there's a good balance in between, right? Right. And you, you touched on something very important here, that power level is something that's always been infamously difficult to nail down, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of the 1 to 10 power scale is something that's been very difficult to formalize. Um, I would say that better men than us have, have certainly tried, and it's arguable whether they've succeeded or not. Um, because there's there's a very subjective uh, sort of lens when you're talking about this sort of thing. And I think a lot of that comes from what you bring to the table, so to speak. For example, I know in uh, in the U.S., our idea of average is, is a seven. And we see that both in, in school and university. We see that in, uh, in review scores, like in video game review stores. If a, if a game gets below a seven you're thinking oh well maybe this game's not so good right even though realistically speaking if it gets above a five uh if if we're if we're taking the scale as as a linear scale above five should be should be good yeah but it's Um, on a curve (laughs) right so we have this issue where there's this enormous power jump between nine and ten between eight and nine between seven and eight uh sort of a logarithmic thing but once you get down to five the jump between one and two and two and three and three and four uh it's it's kind of six of one half a dozen of the other right like you could you could argue till the cows come home is this a one or a two and it doesn't even really make a difference to most people um, no it doesn't register but but let's let's not get too far into the weeds here let's just talk briefly about what we what we mean when we say power level um sure my, in my opinion the the most important metric when you're talking about a deck's power level is by what turn on average is that deck looking to threaten to win or in the case of a stacks deck to threaten to lock the game out sure and like you were saying when you're talking about cdh up in the nines and tens we're talking the low single digits we're talking about turns one two three and four very very fast games um unless you're playing with a stacks deck in which case maybe that deck's trying to lock the game by turn three or turn four, and then maybe they don't win until turn 12, but they've already won in spirit, correct? Right, right. So it's, it's hey, that's we I can say, keep yeah. playing, but just so you know, you guys aren't going to do anything for the next 45 minutes, so we can either shuffle up now or we can shuffle up and you'll be mad 
close to an hour. Well, I hope now. your stack stack can, can close the game up faster than that. But anyway, well, back to the not my stack stack. We'll, we'll get not to that in a second. Uh, and if you're if you're around the seven power level, I would expect that your deck would not, on average, be consistently winning before about turn nine or ten. If you are consistently able to threaten to win the game by turn seven or eight every time i would just me personally because this is completely subjective i would not be calling my deck a seven i would be calling my deck an eight at that point and if you are not winning until after turn nine or turn ten then whether you label your deck a six or a seven that's that's really up to you. If you're not winning until significantly after turn 10, then I think the individual number doesn't really matter so much as just allowing everybody to be aware that your deck either has difficulty winning or maybe it's a pre-con off the shelf. Mm-hmm. And we know traditionally, especially the older pre-cons, some of those have had some very iffy construction where their win cons are kind of all over the place. And they're not really able to secure a win until maybe turn 12 or later. Um, so if if you're if you're not winning by turn 12 uncontested, um, I think at that point then your your deck is probably in the jank area and and whatever number that is is a lot less important. Like I said, right? What's the difference between a two and a three? Could anyone even tell you? I mean, I'd assume not, just because. I, what would you say? Would you say then that seven is probably the average construction that you normally see? And it, it, again, just every every you know play group, if you sit down and there's going to be someone every once in a while that says, "Oh no, I've got a seven, and then they win on turn two, and then they pick up their their cards and leave. Well, I don't believe that guy anymore. But right, would you say seven is probably the the general average then that people are usually building towards? See, that's an interesting question because I don't really see that problem too often where sure. somebody will claim it has happened to me, of course. It's happened to everybody mm-hmm. where somebody will walk up to the table and say, My deck's a seven, and they bust it out, and it's clearly a nine. Um, that, I remember that happened to me. Uh, <laughs> I didn't believe him in the first place because it was an Urza deck. Yeah, and oh, yeah, no, the super friendly, very... slow down Urza deck. Yeah, that's. Oh boy. It's very, very difficult to build an Urza deck to a low power level. It's even more difficult for me to believe that you've done that. And uh, surprise, he didn't. It was a nine. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that seldom happens. I think most people are more responsible and forthcoming than that. I think that this is sort of part of a, a larger point that I've seen sort of murmurings about in the community lately, is that as Commander has evolved as a format and as it's continued to age... And as more content, such as this podcast, has been created surrounding the Commander format, people have been talking about it. And as EDH Rec, uh, just a fantastic website, has become much more popular, people have started to skew towards more consistent and more powerful decks. It doesn't mean that everybody's running a CDH deck now, everyone's running a Super Tune deck. This is just something that you would notice if you sort of look at the kind of decks that people are running three, four years ago compared to the kinds of decks that people are running today. Mm -hmm. You don't really see 
too much people who are building a deck that is at the same level as a precon, right? People sure. have it's, the resources now. It's the to... rising tide that lifts all boats. As as Commander becomes more and more of a format that Wizards actually, you know, builds cards for, as opposed to it mm-hmm. being kind of the side gig, and as more and more content yeah, exists, like you said, I mean, it's as more resources are available the things that would be considered average are going to, you know, slowly drift and level up as well. But that also means that the more competitive decks and the more uh, brewers that are just focused on how can I make the strongest, most powerful deck available, as they get more resources, everything's going to go up a little bit. And that just kind of puts the whole, you know, on a 1 to 10, where's your deck at question. It's just going to put it in more flux. Um, I'm almost at the point where instead of focusing so much as far as everybody's at the same power level as a number, it's almost like, a okay, we're all sitting down at the same table. We know our play group. If Jerry takes out his Urza deck and the rest of us are all taking out a different one and we know that we have to completely focus on Jerry so he doesn't pop off because otherwise we're screwed... As long as you know that ahead of time and you agree to it, that's fine. But if not, and you are caught off guard by someone's ability to play their deck, and more importantly, what is in their deck for them to play, and you don't have anything equipped to do anything about it, that's where it gets a little bit more in flux for me. Yeah, I think that the power scale has really always been about people playing together who have not necessarily played together right. much or at all before. Because as you said, when you're when you're with your group, with Jerry and Timmy and Spike and all those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um like you said, you've played with them enough. You know how their decks work. You know you know what the power level of the deck is intrinsically. You could put a number on it, but you know the nature of that deck to a more precise degree than the vagueness of the commander power skill could possibly imply. So the number scale isn't really useful to you at that point. You already know that's, you don't have a problem at that point, right? Right. The, the problem is when you're playing with somebody whom you've never played with before. And, and that can cause some real issues in that situation. When you're playing with people whom you've never played with before, what I tend to do personally, and I think you might do this too, Mike, is I'll pull out, one of my lower power decks, especially one of my group hug decks. We yep. both love group hug. I won't pull out my stacks deck for the first game, right? Because what if they whip out a super weak deck? Then it's just like, aha! Uh-huh. Oh, I am well, Alex, I... grand oppressor of worlds. And right. Fun. Not only am I not. Oh, sorry time. that you were. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Not only am I not having a fun time by beating them so so roundly. They're not having a fun time. I might not even get a second chance to play with a weaker deck, right? I've blown it. Yeah. So I think it's it's better to err on the side of caution. So, okay. Well, then, let's. why don't we move on to our third item there? I, I think there's a deeper conversation on power level, and not just evaluating it uh, and making sure you're sitting in kind of like the same grouping for it, um, but at the same time, just kind of, you know, looking to make sure that everybody is kind of on the same page everybody is on the same power level as far as what they can do and what they're expecting from other people um which isn't a perfect science but nonetheless it it exists for a reason uh what would you say is number three 
Number three, I would say, is that there's lots of table talk, mm-hmm. but the game keeps moving. And table talk to me is is always a very enjoyable and integral part of, part of uh, Commander as a social game. It's the I biggest. Really enjoyed... It's the biggest separator from us versus other games. I'd say. Of course, when you have what what could barely be described as table talk in say a competitive format like standard or modern you might have comments on uh what just happened you might have uh the the confirmation that they're going to let something on the stack resolve but there's not going to typically be casual social conversation and there's not as often going to be that sort of light-hearted enjoyment and revelry in someone else's uh resolving of something interesting Mm -hmm. which which we'll talk about that in a little more but that that sort of casual table talk in my experience because i've I've judged my fair share of events it doesn't really happen because it's a much more competitive environment you've got your head in the game right it's not the social talk happens between rounds and after the game is over right because because everything you're doing is in the moment at that point right but a game of commander commander games are untimed Commander games have more than two people in them. And just in general, Commander is a casual format. Obviously, you can play Commander at a very competitive, in a competitive way. And those competitive groups do have table talk. Yeah. And that's fantastic. But I would think that even for a competitive CEDH pod, the game is still casual compared to a tournament environment. Mm-hmm. If you're in a tournament environment where there's money or prizes on the line... And if you make a mistake, you can start getting, uh, I would call them demerits, they're warnings. Get warnings, you might be penalized for for forgetting something or for not paying proper attention, uh, for failure to maintain the game state. These are things that really kind of stifle discussion because, as I said, you've got your head in the game. Um, but... So table talk is great. That's great. But what's important is in addition to table talk is that the game continues to move, right? Because while you're talking, you don't want to have this situation where you're getting distracted and going off onto a tangent as, as I so often do <laughs> and sort of stop playing, right? Sure. If you're the active player or you need to respond to something, that's the top priority, right? You need to make sure you're playing out your turn get everything taken care of and if you can multitask if you can talk where you're doing that that's fantastic i feel like i can do that but if you feel like you can't that's fine you can shut up until your turn's over and then just start blabbering on again Mm -hmm. but the game needs to keep moving and i feel that as important as table talk is that comes second to that right right because at the same time if, if you were if you were just there to talk there's a whole lot of different things that you could be doing other than playing you know commander you, there's and and there's there's nothing wrong with that. Like I I like nothing more than the, when the table talk and just casual conversation kind of meet in the middle during the game, where somebody resolves a really big scary Eldrazi uh, with Annihilator, and you just ask, so you're gonna swing that somewhere else, right? Well, why why should I swing it somewhere else? It's just it just that back and forth, that kind of talking, that kind of chatter is always fun. Um, but yeah, making sure that. There is conversation about the game. There's conversation with the people that you're actually playing with, and the game is moving along. And uh, speaking of moving along, 
uh, making sure that the game lasts the right amount of time and that no one is knocked out too early is our item number four here for our checklist. Um, everybody has been in one of those commander games where it's gone on for hours, plural, way too many. Um, no one wants to back out of those games because, you know, sunk cost principle. I've already been here for as long as I have. <laughs> I have to see this through. And then when the game is finally won, there isn't even a very strong, you know, cry of victory. It's more of just that sigh of relief. Like, oh, it's done. Okay, cool. Do we want to try again? Do we want to go home and recover from this? Everything that's happened for the last three and a half hours? Or... We'll see. But just as importantly, want to make sure that we're also not having the 15 minute game if we can possibly handle it. And unless, you know, again, you're in some kind of CDH game and that's what the expectation is. Um, what we definitely don't want on either side of the scale is when someone is knocked out in the first couple of turns. Um, I like Infect. I, I don't run a whole lot of it in my decks, but I don't have a problem with it as a mechanic, and I definitely don't have a problem with it in Commander, because I frankly, unless you're doing it to everybody somehow, it's really hard to win as an Infect deck without putting a whole lot of work into the deck construction. So I've got no problem with it. What does stink is when somebody takes 10 Infect damage in the first four turns, or when somebody runs a Brian Stout arm deck and sneak attacks a Sarah Avatar onto the battlefield and throws 40 at somebody's face on turn four or five. You know, those kind of things. And I say that as somebody who has a Brian Stout arm deck and a Sarah Avatar. But I don't do that <laughs> that early into the game. Uh, you've seen me sit down and I've had, okay, I can either really, really, really hurt this one person and possibly get them out of the game. Or I can spread damage around, or I can spread an effect around, and if it comes to my turn again after that, I might be able to just win. So I'm just going to spread it around. Because I don't like eliminating somebody early unless I know that eliminating them early is going to speed up the game and actually finish the game faster for them to come back. Because otherwise, what are they doing? You know, same thing where uh, it's a 30 minute game if I knock this guy out now and then somebody else resolves another spell and throws off your plan. And then you're playing for another 45 minutes with them basically playing goldfish by themselves until it's time to shuffle up again. So making sure that the game lasted the right amount of time for what everybody's expecting. And more importantly, that no one gets knocked out too early, I think is pretty important to both of us and most people playing commander as well. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, I think it, it definitely bears repeating that the right amount of time is going to be different for every play group. For like sure. You're saying that maybe you do have that group that wants to just pound out those 15-minute games and get four done in an hour. I wish sometimes that I was able to knock that many games out that fast. But for me, uh, for me personally, I think the best kind of games usually are lasting between 45 minutes and around a, no longer than an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. You don't want it to go too much longer than that. But uh, but it's it's what your playgroup wants and is and is prepared for. And like you said, nobody wants that three and a half hour game, right? Sure. I mean, but uh, somebody I, does, but <laughs> they're somebody. not they're not in my group. 
<laughs> Thank goodness. The, I think it's really important to note here that we don't want to discourage eliminating players when that would be advantageous to no, them, right? No, it's the That's, point of the game. You have to win somehow, right? right? You've got to win, and if you're an Infect deck, the way that you're probably going to win, if it isn't lethal Infect on board later on, it's getting out a little Infect creature and pumping it up so fast that nobody has a blocker, right. and like you said, somebody's dead by turn three. Um, that kind of situation... Ideally, you don't want that to be happening. Mm -hmm. If you see that your deck is doing that consistently, you may want to look at either changing the way you play your deck or maybe changing the construction just because, and again, this is just from where I'm sitting, it's not a fun situation, right, to be knocked out that early. And you don't have to knock out everyone at the same time. But if that if that ends up being what your deck is doing every time, you might want to you might want to retune that, right? Sure. And again, it's it's one of those things that I don't even have a problem. If somebody sits down and they're playing Infect and they do that, that's fine with me. That's kind of what their deck is supposed to do. As long as they, as long as the table knows that they're playing an Infect deck. Or as long as there's kind of a, all right, so just so you know, I'm going to put this 2-2 with Infect out there and it's going to latch on to somebody. So just be aware. That kind of conversation is fine with me. Um, speaking of things that may or may not be fine at the table, uh, Alex, what's our fifth item? Our fifth item is that stacks is kept to a minimum. Now, this is definitely a touchy subject. I think that the there's a trifecta of touchy subjects, right? There's stacks, there's chaos, and there's group hug. And I think each of them probably deserves many hours to themselves but uh, right now we're just going to focus on, on stacks. I think that a lot of people have a very knee-jerk reaction to stacks because everybody has been in that game where the stack stack has popped off, but it hasn't won yet. Maybe there's a soft lock in play where you can draw go, but you can't do much else than that. That kind of situation, if you're just stuck in it, it feels bad. You don't get to play your deck. You don't get to play command. It's almost like you're being held hostage. That kind of situation can be a real feels bad kind of situation. And I feel like a lot of people have been conditioned for a very long time to not want that. Even if, and this is the truth, Stax is an important part of Commander. Stax is a foil to combo decks, right? Stax mm -hmm. decks stop combo decks from popping off. They have a purpose. They don't just exist to make you miserable, even if the person who made the Stacks deck loves the fact that you're miserable, right? That's that's not necessarily the goal. However, just because the Stacks decks have a purpose doesn't mean that it's necessarily fun for a lot of people to play against them. And let's go ahead and clarify here what we mean when we're talking about Stacks. When I'm talking about Stacks... I'm talking about highly symmetric, very restrictive effects that are rapidly locking the game down for either the entire table or the entire table except for the stacks player through whatever reason. We're talking right. about stasis, winter orb, static orb, smokestack, 
the classics, right? Mm-hmm. These effects are incredibly oppressive. They're very well known. You're going to get a lot of groans at the table if you see one of those resolve. I think that, that these are the cards that people are most scared of when they think about stacks. I think that there are plenty of other effects that are called stacks that may not elicit that kind of response. Right. You may have taxation effects. You may have uh, Thalia-style effects where things enter tapped, but then they're allowed to untap next turn. So all you're really doing is being set back a turn. Um and then there's effects like uh, like my deck, which which we've talked about before, and you've seen it mm-hmm. is is much more of a much more of a focused deck. I have a a Kaikar stacks deck. I would call it a silver bullet deck. It doesn't have any general effects like stasis or winter orb. It instead has effects like curse of silence, where I'm stopping one problem player from doing what they're trying to do with their deck that is leaping way out ahead of the pack. And I'm not trying to say I do it right, you all do it wrong, because obviously if your group is okay with stacks, you stacks your heart, just stack to your heart's content, right? Right. If that's it's... if that's your fun, and your table is fine with that fun, or at the very least, if they haven't told you, hey, stop playing that deck, <laughs> then that's fine. And I totally get you saying that that's the diplomatic and respectful way to go about Commander. On the other hand... Screw that. <laughs> um, so I have been at the table and I and it, I, it's a good thing that you actually took this topic because I get a little uh, too passionate about it. I I like magic a lot. I, it's literally tattooed on my arm. Um, what I can't I stand is when I'm playing a game of magic where one of the opponent's goal for the game is to stop the table from playing magic. I can't stand stacks. Um, I, I, I've been in more than one game where I sometimes draw my card for turn without doing any of my untap step because there's nothing for me to untap this turn because of all the things that are stopping me from doing so. Draw my card, pass, and then wonder if I should break one of my fingers just so I can feel something before it's my turn again in 20 minutes. I can't stand stacks, but you're right. They exist for a reason. The game is a game about balance and politics, and stacks exist as an equilibrium to stop certain types of decks from winning, to stop certain, uh, frankly, players from winning. You were talking about your stacks deck. Um, the thing that we might not have hit on hard enough is that it is pretty single player focused you you can spread around a little bit of the okay you need to slow down effects but it's not typically something that you're sitting down and playing with off the bat it's something that you're bringing out to counter somebody almost in a kind of reverse group hug type of setting yeah that's that's really exactly how i play it like i mentioned earlier in this episode it I, I never bring that out for the first game of the night, right? Mm-hmm. I only bring it out after I've played with the group. Uh, somebody has demonstrated that their deck is significantly more powerful than the other decks at the table. Um, instead of telling them, hey, buddy, you got to put that deck away. It's too powerful. Or, hey, everybody, we have to get out our more powerful decks to compete with this guy. There's now a third solution for me, which is everybody can keep playing their decks 
I'm going to switch to this deck, Silver Bullet Stacks, <laughs> and I'm going to latch on to you and do everything in my power to stop you from playing. Everyone else at the table, do whatever the hell you want. I'm not touching you. Everyone, I would like to get second place if at all possible, but if not, you just do you. Go ahead and have a great time. Everybody. Oh, my deck can win. My deck has locks, but okay, fair those enough. locks are those locks are not. This is interesting. Um, I've seen what I would describe as as better versions of my deck. Not in that they're uh, trying to do what my deck is trying to do, but in the sense that my deck is trying to win. Just. Don't freak out with Mind Slaver Lock. That's how my deck wins. However, my deck is not seeking the Mind Slaver Lock as fast as possible. That's how the game gets closed out after I've roundly broken the kneecaps of the player who is who is too aggressive, right? But if I wanted to build my deck to be stronger what I've seen is you build the entire deck around the win con I'm completely off uh, uh, off track here but uh, what what we're what we're trying to say here is that stacks is important and stacks is not inherently a bad thing no matter how much Mike's visceral hate for it would have you believe however it is something that you should not be surprised to find that people in your pod may react much like Mike does. That they hate it, they hate it, they hate it. It doesn't matter what kind of stacks deck it is. Don't play that deck. And you know what? That's okay. If you don't want to play with those people, you don't have to. You also don't have to play your stacks deck against those people. Hopefully those people aren't also playing powerful decks, because that would be kind of hypocritical, right? Right. Um... No, it's 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 a fair argument that you make. Um, I I will say I'm glad I was muted when you brought up the the mind slaver effect because I I did need to break one of my fingers uh, to still be able to talk to you and okay, finish the rest of this. Podcast. Let's limit how many fingers you're breaking, right? Hey, th- uh, listen, I got at least six left, um, but it's hard for oh, me to my. count them all at this point. So let's get into <laughs> something that'll make me feel a whole lot better. Um, so number six, battle cruiser. Big, splashy interactions happen at the right moment. Late game. Um, Alex, it, it, we've if people haven't picked up on it, based off my enthusiasm in certain subjects and my vitriol on others, um, I love Battlecruiser Magic. I have too many decks that I have said, hey, take a look at this. Tell me what I should do. And your response is almost always, hey, your uh, mana curve's kind of high there, Mike. And I say, yes, because that's where the fun is to be had. Um, my favorite color is green. Not because any of the big green creatures or anything. It's because green is the fastest way to ramp. It's the most efficient way to ramp. And if I ramp, that means I can cast bigger stuff. And I want to cast a bigger... I need more ramp. I need green. Ah, go. Um, I love the you know genesis wave for 20 i love the villainous wealth the big x spells i love omniscience i love all these things that are huge powerful effects and i like them to happen late enough into the game where it doesn't absolutely break the backs of everybody playing i omniscience is cool it shouldn't be out on turn four it shouldn't be out on turn five it's (laughs) it's these effects that 
really turn into the late game, how is this going to go haymakers that connect? And the coolest part about those is when they don't connect because somebody else has the exact right answer and the table is groaning and then cheering and then the back and forth. That's where I think the big and fun stories about our format actually exist. So that's where I'm at. I think those big uh, splashy plays happening in the late game is our sixth item and for good reason. It's probably my favorite part of the actual game. Well, I'm right there with you, Mike. I also am very much a Timmy. I also love Battlecruiser Magic. And I love when when things are happening. So I won't really try to repeat too much of what you just said, but I do think that you said something very important, and that is that's where the stories come from. Yes. Because stories are how we relive and experience the world around us, right? Whenever you're talking about when people are engaged with a situation, uh, with any medium, they're engaged with the story. How do how do you uh, how do you make sure that your reality TV show isn't just people talking back and forth on couches yelling at each other? The editors create a story, a through line, even if it's not really there. They'll create one because stories are how we interact with the world. And the best way to construct an exciting and a memorable story is to have lots of reversals. Right? Somebody's on top, but then something else happens, and it looks like they're gonna they're gonna fail, but then something else happens and they're back on top again. These sort of last minute, just moonshot style reversals and extremely splashy things. These are where the tables are erupting and cheering. You know, chairs are getting thrown. Nobody's breaking their fingers. It's just a great situation, and. I think if I had a most memorable moment in in Magic, um, I'm sure you have one too, Mike, but just off the top of my head, I can remember I was playing at a table. It was the end of the game. It was the right time. Somebody played down a Dream Halls. And Dream Halls is a remarkable card because it allows... Be still my heart. The most, <laughs> it allows the most absurd things to happen that would never be able to happen normally. Dream Halls is an enchantment for three blue blue that says, rather than pay the mana cost for a spell, its controller may discard a card that shares a color with that spell. So that's a symmetrical effect that's basically omniscience for the table, right? Discard a card omniscience. That you discard a card. Yeah, exactly. So the results of this would be stack wars where people are just slamming effect after effect after effect after effect on the stack. The stack is 20, 30, 40 objects high. You have no idea what's interacting with what. It's a complete met. Like, we're talking a battle in the climax of, of, a, of a Star Wars movie. You can't tell what the hell's going on. <laughs> but you know that it's enjoyable. Um, that's the kind of thing that I like late in my Commander game, Mike. And, and and I'm I'm right there with you. Uh, the the big splashy plays make the story. The story is what makes it fun, and that's why you want to keep coming back. Um, other things that make it fun are having an idea of what the heck is happening. So how how about you go ahead and take <laughs> us to number seven here, Alex? 
Yeah, as much as it is fun to uh, to sort of have so many fun things happening that you lose track of it, it's very important at all times that everyone understands what's happening, their presence, and everyone's paying attention. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in my uh, advice section, but this is really important. Um, you want to make sure that everybody at the table is on the same page, right? If you play a spell and somebody says, what is that? You need to read that spell out or you need to show them the card so they can read it for themselves. Everyone needs to know what's happening. And uh, and we'll talk more about how you can accomplish that in a minute here. But I want to move on to the second part of this point, which is that everyone is present and paying attention. Um, for me... I never have any problem being present in a commander game because I love playing commander. This is just, it's how I relax. It's how I have a good time. Some people don't necessarily feel that exact same way. They enjoy commander, but maybe they're getting bored. Uh, maybe they, maybe this isn't the most fun thing they're doing that night. For whatever reason, the cell phone comes out and they're not looking up a ruling. They're not looking up the Oracle text for a card or ordering a pizza, they're texting with their friends, or they're looking at their newsfeed, or they're answering emails. Something that's not related to the game. And wouldn't you know it, five minutes pass, it's their turn. What comes out of their mouth, Mike? Oh, I'm sorry, what? what's that? What's that? What's going on? Okay, uh, then... I'm going to go ahead and uh, I'm going to play this creature. Uh, I'm going to play a Shriek Maul. Um, when it enters, it'll kill. Oh no, you, that actually doesn't work because ETB effects don't happen right now because of this card that was played while you were on your phone, etc. Yeah, it's not just that you're not present for the game and that you miss interactions, it's that you miss continuous effects that are put onto the field that are important for your interactions that are going to change your strategy. And you're not there to see them. I, I think that I don't want to belabor this point too much, but if you have something that's very important outside of the game, for example, if you know you have a work call or if uh, you have a family member who's very ill and you need to keep up with that, just let the table know ahead of time. And if you need to excuse yourself for an emergency like that and concede for the game, I don't think anyone would blame you for that. It's when you give more attention to something that is not important compared to this game that for the moment we're taking we're taking seriously. We pretend that the game is is important because it is important to us. It having fun is important to us, right? Yeah. And even if the game isn't important in the grand scheme of things, it's to me it still feels disrespectful to to sort of uh distract yourself from it right mike how do you feel about this kind of thing i actually think i've got uh i think i've got a good metaphor for it as far as the way to treat it alex do you watch anything on netflix i do yes okay you know how there will be the season recap that happens before the sh you know the next season of the show get you caught up on everything 
Sure. So that's fine because that's catching you up with hours upon hours of information. Cool. You know, when you start from one episode and you go into the next one and it gives you the option to skip the intro because you were just there, you were just watching, Mm -hmm. you were just seeing what was happening. When somebody isn't paying attention, it's like having to watch that skip intro section every single time that it's their turn to interact on anything because they weren't paying attention. So you have to give a recap of what just happened for three different people's turns for their turn for them to understand what's coming, what's going on, for them to catch up, then for them to play, then for them to forget that something was there. Just, it might not be disrespectful as far as if you've got something going on, you've got something going on. But you're all there, you're all playing. It doesn't have to be the biggest focus in your entire life, but paying enough attention to it to where nothing has to grind to a halt because you weren't paying attention in the first place. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to be distracted. It's not okay to be an actual detriment to the game that's all i think that's a miserably accurate analogy Mike. unfortunately um uh i I, i've been sharing netflix with a couple of people lately (laughs) so (laughs) the last bit about that again our our entire goal is to have fun and i think the most important factor to that is how the game actually does finish and that means that our last number, our, our last point here, number eight, is everyone is a good sport when the game ends. And notes the cool things that happen, those those fun things that actually made the story of the game. Uh, you know, there's these big splashy interactions and everybody's, you know, jockeying for, you know, that arch enemy position. Everybody's doing everything that their deck is designed to do. I Again, I'd, I've heard conflicting reports. I'm pretty sure... It, it's it, is it still canon that we're planeswalkers as we're playing commander in this universe? Yes, it is. Okay, so you're a planeswalker and you're summoning this, you know, bane of progress to destroy all of these artifacts that the Urza deck has made, and he hasn't gotten his mycosynth lattice thing out that makes them all indestructible, and he had it in his hand, but you beat him to it. But then it's an Urza deck, so he just does it again anyway, and that sucked. But everybody was still pretty happy when it. The cool stuff that happened during the game that makes everybody happy that they played and want to play again is the most important factor in the actual game itself. If people aren't talking, but they're happy with how the game went and they want to play again, then that means it's a good game. And that's the end of the day. That's that's the main thing that we're looking for, that it was a fun time and we want to drive it home to play again. I completely agree with you, Mike. Um, I think that some of our listeners may have just been raising their hands or, or cringing because um, I think you just had a, a slip of the tongue there. Mycosynth Lattice turns all permanents into artifacts. Darksteel Forge yeah, that's the makes one. artifacts indestructible. Yep, I, um, I forgot the combo. I got excited. He had one form of it out, but not the... Whatever. <laughs> if, if somebody has Mycosynth Lattice out and you board wipe uh, all artifacts with Bane of Progress... I think that it's possible the table hates you more than it hates For the sure. artifact player. And you know what? Because you just flew up everyone's lands. And you know what? If I understood what was happening and wasn't paying attention because I was on my phone at that point, and then I did that, they would have an ample reason to hate me. So don't do that either. Uh-huh. Have a good time, guys. Uh-huh. And th- I think that uh, kind of sums up our you know, checkpoints for what makes a good commander game. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back with some advice for new players, some advice for older, older players, 
new cards, and then Alex is going to help me out with uh, some rules on a deck that I've made that I kind of still don't understand, and evidently I'm not the only one. So we'll be right back. Hey, it's present Mike filling in for past Mike. Our audio has gotten so much better. Thanks for sticking around with us. So we're going to talk about some cards that are really underplayed. We each think that we're bringing some really interesting cards to the table. And if you want to grab them or any other cards, you can help us out in the process. We have partnered with TCGplayer.com. So if you're looking for any singles, sealed product, deck boxes, sleeves, playmats, really anything to spice up your game experience, go to bit.ly slash EDH social or click on the link in our show notes. You don't pay anything extra, and you'll really help us out by buying all the things you are going to anyway. That's bit.ly slash EDH social, or click the link in our show notes. Back to the show. All right, guys, we are back. So something old, something new. Uh, I am something new for all the new players, and... Oof, uh, this is something that I fall into on a pretty regular basis. I think this is something that everybody can examine, especially newer players. Your deck probably needs more lands. Uh, it almost certainly needs more lands. If you've ever got new packs of cards, you're cracking the new Zendikar Rising packs, and you get uh, an Ancient Green Warden, you get all these cool cards that have to go somewhere, but you don't have the time to really figure out your cuts. What do you do? I'll take out a basic. I'll put that in there. I'll fix it in, in a couple of days. It'll be fine. And then you head over to your LGS or uh, you sit down to play virtually, you know, with the world being the way that it is right now. But the point is, is that that mentality, if I can take out one land to put in this card, if it's the only time you've ever done it, you had that amount of lands in your deck for a reason. That was the right amount of lands that you figured when you made the deck. That's only if you did it once. How many times have you taken out cards to put in lands? It only happens whenever you're really editing the deck, when you're really taking a look at it. Uh, example that happened for me, I have an Estrid the Masked Enchantress deck that runs a whole lot of auras specifically for the lands to make it a big mana deck. So I'm thinking that this deck has probably about... 35 to 38 lands in it, maybe a little lower on the side towards the 35, 34 range because it's such a ramp-based deck. After editing the entire thing out and putting everything in, I found out I was only running 30 lands in that deck. And that's with, oh the, and that's with a couple of lands that are like the Evolving Wilds to find me my basics and the Terramorphic Expanses. And holy cow, if I'm only running 30, how many times have I gone in there and taken out a basic to put in something cool for the Enchantress style. And I ended up really hurting myself in the long run, and I've since then fixed it. But holy cow, everybody, take a real hard look and just count the lands at some point and realize that you don't have nearly as many as you probably should. Yeah, that's great advice, Mike. I feel like a lot of people don't do what I do, which for me is is something that's that's integral, and that is I keep a list of my cards on a deck building website. In my case, I use Tapped Out. Yep. Other people might use uh, other websites like Architect, things like that. Um, but what's important is that you is that you keep an updated list because what can happen is exactly what Mike just said, where 
you're editing your deck, but you're not keeping the proportions in check. And and realistically speaking, if you're taking out a spell, you need to put in a spell. If you're taking out a land, you need to put a land back in. And we're talking about lands that produce mana. We're not talking about Maze of Ith, Glacial Chasm. Right. Those are uh, those like are that. spells disguised as lands. Right. When you're obviously they're not spells because they're lands, but when you're building <laughs> your deck, those are spells. Right. 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 Um, your deck should have, as a rule of thumb, thirty six lands. If you have fewer than that, that's fine. You need to take a look at how your deck is playing. And if you have thirty four lands and you're like, ah, oh, God, I have to mull twice every game. I never have enough lands. Or I always cap out at like six lands and I'm at six lands on turn 12. Well, maybe you need to look at putting in some more lands because it it may not seem like it's that important, right? That, oh, 34 versus 36. It's surprisingly noticeable. I think you can attest to that, Mike. Even minor changes in your in your mana base can, can really have a ripple effect. Um, so going below 36 lands... Make sure you have a reason for doing that, right? Either right. your deck is very low on the curve, or you've added in a lot of accelerants, and you feel okay with taking out a land or two because of how much faster you're ramping. Um, but yeah, you, you you need to be really careful with taking out those those spells to put or taking out those lands to put spells in because the the lands lands are not interesting. They're expensive. And they're nice, but they're not interesting, right? Mm -hmm. You don't typically start building a deck and be like, man, I can't wait to put all these lands in my deck. Usually I do lands last, right? When I'm building a deck, I'll I'll do all the stuff that I like doing, and then I'll do, you know, the 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 vegetables as as other podcasts have called <laughs> them, the ramp, the draw. And then lastly, I'll put in the lands. And usually when I'm building a deck, I'll just put in the requisite number of basics and sort it all out later. Um, I'm not building a deck to put lands in it typically. Yeah, and I 100% I, I get the vegetables reference, and my argument is that you can make vegetables delicious. <laughs> I'm almost in the lands or vitamins. You have to take them. You If you take them with a glass of water, maybe it doesn't you know feel as bad. But you have to take them. You have to take them every day. And you do that so you can do the cool things. You can't play Battle Cruiser Magic if you don't have a way to pay for it. Exactly. So, what is your advice for more veteran players this week, Alex? So I alluded to this when I was talking about uh, one of the points on our list about how everyone needs to understand what's happening in the game. This is how you would accomplish that. Get into the habit of being forthright. What do I mean when I say that? I want you to pretend like you're on game nights, like you're on Commander Versus, like you're on your live Commander gameplay video of choice. My goodness, I'm you're famous. famous. Everything's fantastic. You did, you did it. You made it on there. What do all of those people do on those shows that maybe they don't do in a normal game. Mike, can you identify that? Um, well, they all look prettier than I do for the most part. Yeah, they, they have makeup on. That helps. Um, that helps. But I, I think I, I get where you're going at here. They they explain everything they do as they're doing it. They, they will 
Exactly. They will they'll talk about the okay they might not go through every step and announce it, but if they play a land, they're gonna tell you they're playing a land. If they play a spell, they're gonna tell you they're playing a spell. And you go actually further into it um, in a way where I think not just for the actual hearing and understanding of what's going on, but more for the table to know how important it is that you're actually telling them what's going on. Right. That's that's what they're doing. They're explaining everything that they're doing. Now, they're not explaining why they're doing it. They might explain that in the interview afterward. Um, and we might get that in the voiceover, but they definitely tell us everything they're doing because you're watching this on a video screen. You can't just uh, pick up one of their cards and look at them, right? You need to know what every card is. You need to know everything that they're doing. And they've also time compressed it. There's a lot of reasons why they do it. You should be doing that in your games that you play, in your commander games. Announce every action you take, every spell you cast, whenever a triggered ability of a permanent you control triggers, and especially when you're threatening to win the game. When you are threatening to win the game, when you've got your penultimate combo piece out, when you've got lethal on board and you're going to swing out next turn, I want you to snitch on yourself. I want you to stand up. You don't actually have to stand up and just point at your board, point at the cards and say, hey, everybody, see these cards? I'm going to win by doing this really soon. So you need to stop me or I'm going to win the game. Standing up and doing that would be a real power move, though. You stand up, you point at two cards and you say, I am Alex. Ruler of the command table. With these two cards, I shall defeat the all. Now, you may have read that as a power move. I feel like <laughs> most people heard that and they're like, what the hell are you talking about? I meant the literally standing I... up part, but yes, continue. Sure. Why would I announce to everybody that I'm about to win the game? Wouldn't that impact my ability to win the game by inviting somebody to stop me and i would say that's a good thing if somebody is able to stop you using the cards that they have the resources that they have you don't want them after the game is over and after you've already won to be like ah if i knew that's what you were doing i could have played this spell i could have done this we could have done this and we could have kept the game going we could have stopped mm. you but i didn't know what you were doing that's a feels bad moment in my opinion part of everybody having a good time is everybody having perfect knowledge of the state of the game that doesn't mean that they have perfect knowledge of your strategy and what's going on in your head what's in your hand what's in your deck they don't need to know that but they do need to know the most that they can know about everything that is visible to everyone. And part of that is knowing when the game is about to end. When you are playing a game of chess and you are about to win, there's a rule for that. You don't keep it to yourself. You say check. And part of that is to make sure that the other player knows that you are about to win the game. And that they must take an action to stop you from winning. Because if you could just 
put your pieces in such a way that only somebody who's paying extremely close attention would notice, well, you're going to get their king next turn, and you didn't tell them, then you could catch them by surprise. And sure, you might win, but in my opinion... That's not that much of a win, right? Mike, how do you how do you feel about that? So I, I I like the analogy that you're making with chess there, but with one change for anybody that's listening to this and thinks that it's absolutely ridiculous that you you'd concede a win essentially because you'd let people know that you've got it. If you're talking about chess, all of the pieces are on the board. There is no counterspell in chess that you get to pull from a side <laughs> to stop something. Yeah, you can take a pawn to the other side and turn it into another queen. Sure. That's not the difference, though. The difference that we're talking about here is awareness versus foresight. You are making people aware of the situation that you have. You're not telling them necessarily, by the way, I win on this turn if I survive because of this card and this card in my hand. Maybe you are, but that's not what you're doing every time. You're letting people know, hey, this piece that I have on the board interacts with this piece. So just know if you guys can't do anything about that, I'm going to win the game. So interact with it or don't. Just making people aware without giving up the goose if that makes sense it does make sense okay and mike you brought you brought another point well to my attention that that i really appreciated and that's that snitching on yourself and being forthright about all of the actions that you're taking that brings you a modicum of respect at the table right people are oh, going for sure. to remember people are going to remember that you that when you were a threat you told everybody and when you, when it's your turn to play the politics game and tell other people about threats that other people have, that your opponents have, and stop your opponents from winning the game, your words are going to carry more weight because they remember you were honest. It's, it's, the, good, it's the good dude check. You know, it's, it's the, hey, that guy's a good dude. I'd play a game with him again. I'd play a game with her again. And by the way, girls, ladies... Absolutely can be dudes, because dude is an all-inclusive word. Cool. So that's our uh, advice for this week. Be forthright, put more lands in your decks, and uh, you're going to have a better time because you'll actually get to play what you want to, and other people won't think that you're an absolute jerk. Those are pretty integral things. They didn't totally make the list of eight things that are important for us in a good commander game, but they're in there somewhere. So this week for our... Wait, can I see that? Our segment where we talk about the cards that... If you play at your table, there's a good chance that you're going to get a couple of puzzled looks and then people ask you if they can pick it up, take a picture of it, and possibly go and add it to their collection in the very near future. Um, I'll go ahead and start this week. Uh, my card is... it's It's got a weird interaction in that it does a couple of things that people like individually and combines them with a little bit of a couple, with just a little bit of a of a few hoops to jump through, and I am choosing Perilous Forays. Um, this is on EDH Rec. It is in about just over twenty two hundred decks out of just under two hundred thousand. So a little bit more than one percent of decks. It is a three generic, two green enchantment 
for one generic and sacrificing a creature, you search your library for a land card with a basic land type and put it in the play tab, then shuffle your library. What are some really, really important things to do in Commander? Ramp. What are some really good strategies that people like to play as much as possible? Aristocrats. Sacrifice effects. Death triggers. This encompasses both of those effects into the same card. It is a little expensive as far as an actual casting cost, but as we've already established, Mike likes himself some Battlecruiser magic, and he also likes things that ramp as much as possible to cast more of that Battlecruiser magic. Evidently, Mike also likes to refer himself in the third person when he's not paying attention. But the whole point is, mm. is that Perilous Forays is a card that I don't ever see. And I don't know why, because my favorite part about this card, Alex, is that it's $1.50 on TCG Player. Like, this is not an expensive card. It's not a free sacrifice outlet, but it's a sacrifice outlet with upside. So I understand that it's not one of the altars. But man, getting a basic land for any kind of sacrificing of a token, especially if you've got landfall triggers, especially right now with Zendikar Rising being the most rele uh, recent set, that's big. I don't understand why I don't see this card in a lot more green decks. I understand that it doesn't fit in every one of them. But holy cow, why is this a card that I have three of and I haven't seen anybody else play one? Well, I think you described it pretty accurately, Mike. Um, it's not an altar. And altars have a couple of upsides that this card doesn't have, even if they don't have the... Uh, the excellent effect, which which I'll talk about in a second, the benefit of the sacrifice. One of those is that it does cost three green green. That's five mana, and most altars are two or three mana. So having an altar that expensive, that definitely puts some people off. And then the fact that it's not a free sack outlet, right? It costs one generic, right? Plus the sacrifice. Now, I think this is a lovely effect, but I can definitely see why people aren't running it because i'm not running it i have a sacrifice deck that this is perfectly on theme for and i'm not running it and the reason why i'm not running it is because it's not a free sacrifice outlet sure if if it costed four green green and it was a free sack outlet i might start to consider it right the fact that it costs mana each time you want to sack i think that turns a lot of people off there are innumerable sack outlets even ones that don't provide any benefit and the fact that they sacrifice a creature for free puts them above this card in many people's minds but let's talk about the upside of of what happens when you sacrifice the creature because uh we may not have explained this adequately it says that you're searching your library for a land card with a basic land type yeah that doesn't need a basic land you can find a basic land if you want to find a basic land that's fine but a basic land type is any land with the type forest, plains, mountain, swamp, or island. So that includes your shock lands, it includes your tango lands, your ABUR duels. There are probably a lot of lands in your deck that have one of those basic land types, and you can find them with this card, and that's a big upside. Absolutely. This is like I said, I I get that this doesn't belong in every deck. I get that this doesn't belong 
in just a aristocrats deck. I get that this doesn't belong in just a ramp deck. Because if that's what you're doing, you've got probably more efficient ways to handle that. But when you talk about getting into especially landfall decks, especially decks where you have a whole bunch of different land types, especially when you're talking about decks that you want to be able to churn creatures, things like that, the graveyard recursion decks. I just feel like this is a card that is extremely underutilized because it's a B-plus version of all of the other things you would look for separately. And maybe not a B-plus, but it's not as good of an altar. It's not as good of a ramp card. But it's a pretty good version of the two. And that's why I picked it this week. It's a good pick. Well, I might have a good pick that has to deal with bringing lands and maybe not what you would normally get. You blew me out of the water on uh, on one that I haven't seen a whole lot of because I haven't seen it before. And I don't know why at this point, because it's a pretty ridiculous card. What do you have for us this week, Alex? Well, I've got a land that's very near and dear to my heart. This is this is not a budget pick. I'm going to be honest. It's not a buck fifty. So we're not looking at this as a uh, as an easy replacement for any deck. And that's because it's on the reserve list. we got to be honest. Cards on the reserve list are going to cost money. Sure. Uh, this, this card is Scorched Ruins. It's a land, and it has the uh, replacement effect. If Scorched Ruins would enter the battlefield, sacrifice two untapped lands instead. If you do, put Scorched Ruins onto the battlefield. If you don't, put it into its owner's graveyard. Uh, that's that's some, uh, some difficult-to-parse text. We'll just break that down real quick. That means... If you want this land to ETB, you need to sack two untapped lands, and there's simply no way around that. You can't stifle the trigger because there isn't one. Um, you either sack two untapped lands or you sack this. Or rather, you don't even get to sack it. It just goes straight to the graveyard. So that seems like a pretty hefty price, sack two untapped lands. What's the mana ability on this land? Uh, well, it's it's tap add four colorless. Four. Four colorless. Alex, that's a lot more than two. That's more than two. That's, uh, I think that's just about the most, and you can correct me on this, I think that's the most that any land straight up taps for uh, without first being like a storage land or something else like that. Or something that, uh, based off of the rest of your board state, like a Gaia's Cradle or something along those exactly. lines. Exactly. Yeah, by something itself that, that does pretty ridiculous right. stuff. This always taps for four mana. Now, there are definitely some some things to talk about here. Uh, let's go ahead and start with this. You don't want this in your three, four, five color deck. No, of course. This not. is a card. This is a card for your for your one color, your monocolor deck, your two color deck, and your colorless deck if you have one, which I do. And this card's definitely in it, um, because that's that's colorless mana. And even though it's some fantastic ramp, if you're in a three, four, five color deck, you probably can't afford uh, to to have a land like this. However, in your monocolor deck in your two-color deck, in your colorless deck. This is, I think, as good, if not better, than any of the other options you have for soul lands, lands to tap for two or more mana. Let's talk about a couple of those real quick, some of the some of the competitors. Sure. Let's talk about one of my least favorite lands, Temple of the False God. 
Oh, buddy. I know. Go ahead. Temple of the False God has been in every pre-con since time immemorial. And I would feel very comfortable calling Temple of the False God a noob trap. Because they see the mana ability. It says tap at two colorless. And that's that's one more than usual, right? That's fantastic. Unfortunately, Temple of the False God uh, can't be tapped for mana unless you have five or more lands in play. And that means the Temple of the False God is a dead card in your hand when it's in your opening hand, when it's in your first turn, second turn, third turn, maybe even your fourth turn. That's a lot of turns for a card to be completely useless to you, right? Yep. I don't like that card. We would say that you need to have four lands in play because Temple can be your fifth before that card turns on. Scorch Ruins requires you to have two lands in play before you play it. That's literally half the requirement, right? So I think that's quite a bit of an upshot. Uh, the other one I would compare this to is is Ancient Tomb. Uh, Ancient Tomb, very popular land. I think it's a lot, a lot more powerful than Temple of the False God. Uh, and that is tap at two colorless. Ancient Tomb does two damage to you. Now, in Commander, that's that's pretty fantastic. I think a lot of people like Ancient Tomb and Commander. I definitely like it. Um, you don't really notice that life loss early on, and you're ramping at a pretty fantastic rate with an Ancient Tomb out. Uh, people are willing for that downside. Um, but as the game drags on, you're getting into those later turns. Maybe you're down to like 12 life. Ancient Tomb starts to look like something that maybe you don't want to be tapping it so much anymore, right? You don't want to... Sure. You don't, you don't want to get to a spot where somebody could feel like they can knock you out of the game because your life's so low. Um, I think Scorch Ruins, of the many different soul lands, has one of the most reasonable downsides that continues to function well into the late game. Um, the Really, the only caveat that I would have for this card is this, if you're in a meta with a lot of spot land destruction, right? Yeah. Their wasteland... People are using all their Spotland Destruction, Tectonic Edge, and if if you're in a meta where Guy's Cradle, Sarah Sanctum don't even live a single turn, like you, you play the land, you tap it for mana, and in response to the spell you're casting, somebody blows it up. Like, if that's the kind of meta that you're in, maybe think twice before you run Scorch Ruins, because... <laughs> you don't want to uh you don't want to play this land sack two lands and then lose this land too because uh, that's that's a pretty feel bad situation however in my meta and in many other people's metas uh there's not that much spot land destruction maybe there's some but there's not enough where they would be hitting a card like this in my experience i have lost this card before most of the time i don't lose it mike how do you feel about square ruins so i like it um i do get I especially get what you're talking about as far as if there's if you're in a meta that involves a decent amount of you know targeted land removal, sure. But at the same time, I think if you're in that meta, I man, I don't know that this is the one that gets blown up because people are in that meta to blow up the Gaia's Cradles and the Sarah Sanctums and things like that. I don't know that this is the one that 
it's a feel bad card for sure if that get if that gets blown up because it essentially lost you three lands, but it's a very good card. Like even if it's even it, even if that does happen five percent of the time, in every other time that you're playing that card, especially if you've got the other things that go with it, if you've got the ability to play lands from your graveyard, great. If you've got the ability to untap lands. That's a pretty efficient way to do so. It's a it's a card that again, I've I've never seen it before you brought it up. I could argue this over Ancient Tomb in some settings. And it's about half the price. I'm 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 a big fan of it. I'm 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 yeah. I'm not gonna lie, I wish I had more insight to give you on this card, but part of the while you were talking about it, I was actually going on TCG player and finding out how many and how much it would be for me to get a couple for a couple of specific decks. So that's yeah, on me. this. This card's not cheap. <laughs> it's uh, it's thirty three dollars. Sure. At, uh, at at the market price, that's pretty expensive. Yeah. But it is on the reserve list. They're never going to reprint this card until the sun burns out. No. Um, get one. Get one now, or be very, very, very sad when you see it in the wild. There were a lot of people that were uh, they were really excited about. Uh, Lotus Veil, I believe, was the new one. Uh, Field. It's basically the... Field's the new one? Field is the new one, yeah. The Hexproof. Field's the new one. Um, And that card, Lotus Veil, Lotus Field, and Scorch Ruins, I think they're... These are siblings, right? Sure. They're lands that they enter, you sacrifice two lands, and you get some benefit on the land. Um, for, For Lotus Veil and Lotus Field, that benefit is you tap for three colored mana, which is great, but that didn't ramp you right Mm -hmm. that doesn't actually you're only up one mana and that being up one mana is is how much you would be up if you played any land basically right so really to to take use of of lotus veil and lotus field you need to be in a land stack like you were talking about where you're playing lands out of your graveyard where you're improving how much mana each land taps for things like that um scorch ruins you don't need to be in a land stack because it's tapping for a net gain of two mana right off the bat right Absolutely. It's applicable in more decks. It is. It's. It's only. It's only a bad card if it gets removed. That's the only circumstance when it actually hurts you. And and that means it's I a think, pretty powerful card. Absolutely. I, I think anytime that a card is only upside unless somebody takes it away, if that's the be all end all of it, it's a card that usually goes in a lot of decks. The fact that that's not in there. I mean, outside of the fact that it's on reserve list. I think that's really the only downfall. Yep. This card is in 1,111 decks, or as EDH rec puts it, uh, 0% of all decks. Yeah. Um, 0%. Uh, it has been shown not a very high number. <laughs> so, all right. Moving on to our last segment here. Alex, I uh, actually need some help. Um, so our, our segment where Alex explains something to my, uh, my simplistic magic brain, uh, um, judge. Uh, so I recently made a Zedru deck. Um, I based this off of, if you, if anybody has, uh, watched loading, ready, run, um, awesome group based out of Canada, does a whole lot of magic and video games and, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, but mostly Magic is what they center on, and they're funny. I like them a lot. 
they did a blind commander game where Card Kingdom actually came in and people working at Card Kingdom assembled them commander decks. And one of them was a Dungeons and Dragons based Zedru deck. So lots of dragons as the actual creature type, and then lots of things to be able to give to people and the adventuring party, quote unquote, uh, for, you know, politics. And I loved it. So I made my own spin on it and played it with my playgroup and then came to a problem. Um, so the card in question, I think, is called Coveted Jewel. I believe that's what it is. Yep. Uh, but yep. essentially, six mana artifact, play it, you draw three cards, you can tap it for three mana of any color. If somebody were to hit you in combat, they get the actual coveted jewel, they untap it, they draw three cards. So it's kind of like this own monarch effect for this really cool mana rock. And I was excited because I saw someone that was absolutely struggling in the game. I had a 2-2 on board, and I'm just like, I'll tell you what. You go ahead and swing your little 1-1 mana dork at me. I won't block. You'll get this jewel and then you just make sure that I'm allowed to get it back when it's my turn. Deal? Oh, absolutely. He, you know, he's losing the game at that point, so he's all in on that idea. Yay, politics. Yay, commander. Unfortunately, he got killed by an effect that did not do combat damage to him. So he dies before it gets back to my turn. But the jewel never exchanged hands after that. So... He died. He has control of this thing that I own. Where does it go? Does that mean it goes into the graveyard? Does that mean it goes into my... Does it go into exile because he no longer exists? I know he doesn't get to just take it home with him. So where, how does this work? How do, how do we deal with, I have this thing. I own it. I play it. And I give it away. Or someone takes it versus if something is taken that I never even got to play with or it's an exchange kind of, how does this work Alex dumb this down for me so I actually can play my Zedru deck without being afraid and having to look up on my phone every single time yeah you got it Mike this is definitely one of the most common questions that I'm asked as a judge is what happens when players lose the game in a multiplayer game in commander because this is confusing for people that they uh Oh, to say the common sense is, is not really there. There's no intuitive answer. So let's just walk through the steps of what happens here. Because thankfully, uh, they don't get to leave with your cards, right? Anti is is banned. There's no there's no gambling in magic. Right. So when a player loses the game, first thing that happens, all objects they own cease to exist. That's every card they own, every effect on the stack that they own, every token they own, they stop existing. We know that part already. That's why when somebody loses or concedes, they can leave and they don't have to wait for you to be done with stealing their card, right? Right. So that's uh, that's the part that we all understand. Here comes the next part. Following that, any continuous control-changing effects that gave that player control over any objects they don't own end. That's everything like Zedru donating something that's... Harmless offering, that's donates. Roll reversal. That's yep, that's uh, mind control effects, 
any aura that steals anything from somebody else uh, that already has it in play, anything like that. If it's on the battlefield and it was donated or stolen on the battlefield, those effects end. Okay. And when those effects end, we're going to look back in time. We're going to look at our timestamps and we're going to see who had control of that object most recently. Most of the time, it's going to be its original owner because most things only get stolen once. However, for something like Coveted Jewel, they might be bouncing around the field, right? Somebody steals it, someone steals it from them, then someone steals it from them, then you steal it back. We, we just need to unwind that, uh, that path there. If, if they took it from you, even if you let, even if you let them take it from you, <laughs> uh, and they lose the game, then you get it back. That's how that works. Hmm. So, what happens after that? Lastly, all objects that the player still controls after that get exiled. So that's anything that that player stole without gaining control of it. We're talking effects like bribery or Rise of the Dark Realms or Atali Primal Storm. Things that allow a player to steal cards from a zone that isn't the battlefield. Send triplets. When, when somebody does that, they have control of, a, of an object that you own, but they never gained control of it, technically speaking. They just have control of it. And because of that, there is no control-changing effect that can end. And so when the control-changing effects end, they still have control of it. And when that happens, that card gets exiled when they lose the game or leave the game. So let's let's recap because we just went through a lot of jargon. Yes, please. As a rule of thumb, if you donated something to somebody or they stole something that was already on the battlefield, or that, uh, yeah, that if somebody stole something that was already on the battlefield, then when they lose the game, it will return to the control of whoever had it previously. If they stole it from anywhere else graveyard from library from exile um, if it entered the battlefield under their control and they don't own it then it gets exiled when they lose the game does that make sense to you Mike? it does so basically for if it's something that is played it goes back to its original owner if it's something that was never played then it goes into exile am i right yeah, you're mostly right. We, we need to be careful about that first part because okay. it doesn't necessarily go back to its original owner. It goes back to the person who had control of it, who had a control-changing effect uh, that gave them control of that card most recently. If that was nobody else, then yes, it is the original owner. Okay. But again, for something like Coveted Jewel, if that player stole it from you and somebody stole it from them and then that player stole it back and they lost the game... It doesn't go back to you. It goes back to the player that had it right before they did. Got it. Okay. I'm still going to screw that up the next time that I play Zedru, but I'll figure it out after the fact why I screwed it up and how I screwed it up, as opposed to just not having a clue in the first place. So at the very, very least, we've improved on my situation, and that's hopefully what we've done for you guys. Um, Alex, thank you very much for being here this week for clearing that up for me and for just being able to talk about commander happy to be here mike all right guys until next week uh we're gonna go ahead and cast teferi's protection and phase out 
We'll see you then.